good morning, everybody, and good morning to you in podcast land. It's so good again to be able to go through the, cha- the ninth chapter of Matthew. Um, this is the second part of the miracles. And this week I had an unexpected thing happen. When I checked my visa balance to see if a credit had been made that I was expecting, I found that over $500 in charges had been made on my visa. Someone had accessed my number, and the stolen number they used to hop aboard taxis and fraudulently claim the right to use it for their own purpose. I had not authorized it, and when I called Visa and reported this, the young man who helped me had the authority to instantly cancel my card and proceeded to issue a new card. I thought about this, and the thing that came to mind was I had no authority to prevent any more charges, I had no authority to cancel a card, but I knew who to go to, to get satisfaction. I knew who had the authority to help in this situation. Last week, as Barb proceeded to lead us through the first part of the miracles that Jesus did, we saw the authority which Jesus had as he healed. There was a leper, a Roman centurion, a woman with a fever, many unnamed sick, and two demoniacs. Barb described the interaction with the centurion who knew what authority meant, for he had it and described it and then affirmed that he recognized Jesus' authority and his power and said, just say the word. You don't even have to come. And of course, Jesus affirms with a, what a great faith he had. So today in chapter 9, we're going to see a continuation of Jesus showing who he is, the long-awaited king, and with these miracles, we see the heart of God shown through the heart of Jesus, who said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So here's the Savior willing to heal both Jew and Gentile, a Savior whose healing power knows no limits. Here is his authority manifesting itself. And rather than reading the whole chapter at once, I'd like to take us through the scripture miracle by miracle, reading the scripture, talking about it, and then moving on to the next miracle. But before I start, let's just pray together. Father, we're just so thankful to be able to read, to see your heart through your son, to see what he did when he was here among us. And today is no less his presence with us. We thank you, Father, for your word, for your Holy Spirit. And I pray now as we read through these verses that your spirit will touch us in a fresh new way, that we'll see who we have, who is our great redeemer, our savior, our friend. Thank you for the ladies here. Thank you for those who are going to listen to this. Thank you for all the different things you've given to us in grace and mercy. Continue with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, our study has a change of location. Last week in chapter 8, after the healing of the two demoniacs, the people begged Jesus to leave their region. Just imagine, they would rather have the wonderful healer leave their area in spite of the good that he did. Now, financially, the loss of such a large herd, uh, in Mark's version, it says that there were 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of bacon. The loss of those pigs might have had something to do with it financially. So Jesus leaves the region on the eastern shore of Lake Galilee and crosses back over to his own city, Capernaum, which was a garrison town on the western shore of the lake. Capernaum was where he settled after he had been rejected by the people of Nazareth. So right now, let's just read together chapter 
9, verses 1 to 8. Follow along with me. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming, blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As we see this miracle happening, we see the beginning of opposition to Jesus. Matthew gives a very abbreviated account of this miracle. The full description in Mark 2 of these friends who bring their paralyzed friends on a pallet. And because of the crowd that had gathered around Jesus, they removed some of the covering of the roof and let him down through a hole in the roof. Imagine having those kinds of friends that not only have their own faith, but want the best for their friend. And Jesus commends them. It says in Mark, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He calls him son. That's a familial term, and we'll talk about that later. Perhaps in this case, there was a connection in how the man had been living and the sin in his life. But oh, oh, wait for it, wait for it. Verse 3, this man is blaspheming. These authorities on the explanation of the law. They were such authorities, they're sputtering among themselves. And Jesus said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Anyone can make that statement. It's just a statement. Or to make that statement rise and walk? That's just a statement. But to prove, so you may know, K-N-O-W, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And it happened. Now, I don't know what his legs looked like, but his muscles must have atrophied. How long he'd been paralyzed, we're not told. He picked up his bed and walked. Not only strength enough to get up, but to pick up his bed. How heavy it was, how foldable, we're not told. But when Jesus heals, he heals. Remember when Peter's mother was healed? She got up and made a meal. After anyone has had a serious fever or illness, and you may have gone through something like that, you just don't bounce back. But when Jesus heals, he heals. When he forgives sins, they are forgiven, done with. The crowd saw it and glorified God, who had given such authority to, them, to men. Jesus heals physically, spiritually, whether it's a physical healing or a spiritual healing, it is a miracle. I once asked a young woman in our church to give her testimony, and she replied that her testimony was not very exciting. I had to remind her, what do you think is the greater miracle? When someone's heart is stony, who has no desire for God or the things of his kingdom, but who on hearing the word of God responds and sees their sinful state and their need of a savior and then becomes a child of God with the promise of eternal life. Now realizing this, because of God intervening in their life and calling them to himself, I think that's a miracle. 
Remember, the miracles we read of here in these two categories were improvements to the flesh, to their bodies, but eventually they would die. These are wonderful miracles, but the real miracle is to have eternal life, to never die, to live eternally with God. On Sunday, we were reminded what God does when he works in a person's life. It was promised in Jeremiah 24 and 7. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. You notice who's doing the giving? God is. Now, isn't that incredible? God said it again in Ezekiel 36 and 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'll put within you that spirit, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So these miracles are fabulous, but as fabulous as they are, they're temporal, and we certainly do pray for healing for our dear ones. But our greatest need is for spiritual healing, and Jesus is pointing to this. These miracles are pointing to the fact that what is eternal is the most important thing. Well, verse 9 to 17, let's look at it. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Matthew gives us just this little short sentence, doesn't he? A little testimony here of what happened to him. But there's also a bit of teaching here. One sentence to show what happened. Jesus says, follow me. Matthew rose and followed him. He had been called and he had responded. He'd been living in opposition to the Jewish people, and now he was following Jesus. Sometime later, Jesus was dining with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees say to the disciples, now notice this, they didn't direct their statement to Jesus. But when Jesus heard it secondhand, he made the statement, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, they were so self-righteous, they didn't get it. They who had all the law, all the prophets, all the teaching, they should have recognized who Jesus was. So then he reminds us, them by using this rebuke, go and learn. He's, he's saying, go and learn. Because obviously what you've taken in, you haven't applied or learned. He quotes Hosea 6 and 6. And they were so focused on the outward ritual and ceremonial aspects of God's law to the neglect of inward eternal moral precepts. They become harsh, judgmental, scornful. 
And Jesus later in chapter 23, 24 would remind them, he'd call them blind guides who strain at a net and swallow a camel. He used a bit of hyperbole there. He's just saying that, you know, they make a big deal over the little things, but the weightier matters they have neglected. And he, he rebukes them again in, in Matthew 23. I don't want to take anybody's thunder who's going to do that, that chapter, but he talks about them paying tithes of mint and anise and cumin, insignificant garden herbs. They were part of the law. They were told to, to pay tithes, but they were so scrupulous in paying those tithes to the detriment of the more important things, the more important duties. And then there's the question of fasting that we just read. Now, this is a different group questioning. These are the disciples of John the Baptist. At least they had the integrity to come to Jesus himself and confront him. How come your disciples do not fast? And Jesus has to remind them who he is and who John said he was. He speaks metaphorically here. In John's gospel, John describes himself as the friend of the bridegroom. Listen as I read John 3, 28 to 31. John 3, 28 to 31. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, and this is John speaking, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Very interesting. John said he was the bride, the, the groom. John saw himself as sort of the best man, if you, if you will. Jesus is the groom. And therefore, his disciples are his wedding guests. So Jesus, the groom, is with them. There's no need to fast. Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride, united to him through faith. Now, Jesus is using a messianic term here, because in referring to himself as the bridegroom, he's the one in whom Revelation 19 refers to in the marriage supper of the Lamb. He has come. His bride is making herself ready. But in the meantime, Jesus is there with them, and for now... They don't need to fast. And there'll come a time when he's taken away from them, and then they will fast. And so, verse 16, a new thing is happening here. Jesus gives an analogy of what happens when you try to patch the new covenant teaching to the old mosaic form. It just won't work. For example, in a situation where the Pharisees say, no one can forgive sins but God, and he forgives through the priest offering an animal sacrifice. Now that was the old Mosaic form, a shadow. But God through Jesus and the new covenant teaching says, Jesus is the priest, Jesus is the sacrifice, Jesus is the temple, and Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Another example of this teaching, trying to join the old Mosaic law with the new covenant, holiness means separateness. You don't eat this food or you don't eat that food. You don't associate with irreligious Jews or godless Gentiles. But the New Covenant teaching teaches that at times holiness can mean separation. We've got to be careful who and how close we are to unbelievers. But we certainly don't separate from them. And for the sake of the gospel, we're to become all things to all people, to eat with sinners, to socialize with them 
to get to know them so that they will get to know us and we can witness for Christ. And we saw that Jesus doing in Matthew's house. Well, let's go on and let's read chapter 18 to 26. 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to, be, to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If only I can touch his garment, I'll be made well. So Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. You notice another familial term, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So a miracle within a miracle. Here we see two desperate people. Jairus, a Jewish ruler of the synagogue. And if you had read the chapters in Mark and Luke, you get a fuller picture. Jairus, not necessarily a man of great faith or a follower of Jesus, but he was a desperate man. His little girl, age 12, had died. She is dead, and yet he comes to Jesus and says, Come, and lay your hand on her, and she'll live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. If you compare the centurion with this ruler of the synagogue, the centurion showed great faith. Yet this ruler in the synagogue is coming to Jesus out of desperation. And I like what Douglas O'Donnell says as he describes the scene. The religious crowd are gathered outside Matthew's front door throwing their questions at Jesus. Here comes Jairus, they know him. Oh, they think he must have some questions for Jesus. But no, on bended knee he comes with a confession. And, and the sense of his plea is this. My daughter has died, but I have faith in you. I may not know who you are, a prophet, the Messiah, God in the flesh. What I do know is that God is with you in a unique way an extraordinary way, that he's with you as he was with Elijah and Elisha. And just as they raised the dead, I believe, Jesus, if you would just come to my house and simply lay your hand on her, I believe she'll be brought back to life. End quote. If you remember the stories of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, they restored life by stretching their body over a child in one instance, and by mouth to mouth in another instance. Jesus, Jairus simply says, one touch. And we see Jesus' response to this humble plea for help. This will be a new kind of miracle, raising the dead. But on the way, another miracle occurred, a miracle within a miracle. As Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house, another desperate soul, a woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, who has spent her money trying for healing, and due to her bleeding, she was classified as unclean according to Leviticus 15 and 19. For over a decade, she was unable to take part in public worship. She struggles through the crowd. 
and Matthew's account is much shorter than Mark's account. She is desperate, but operating on a suspicious idea. If she can just touch the fringe of his garment, or is it suspicion? The fringe probably means the tassels on the edge of the garment were there to remind those who looked on them to obey God's covenant commands. In Numbers 15, 37 and 41, that instruction is given that these tassels were to remind them that who the Lord was, they were to obey his commandments. And so was her faith like those of today who believing for healing touch the TV screen when the televangelist says, touch the screen and, and you'll be healed? Or is it a brave explanation that she will be healed? Her faith was not in response to a miracle, but an expectation of one. And we know it was her faith because Jesus said to her, take heart, daughter. Here's another one, these familial expressions. Your faith has made you well. Remember back in verse two, the paralytic was my son and she's daughter. You know, the scripture tells us in 1 John 3 and 2, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. But in the meantime, when we hear that Jesus called her daughter and he called the paralytic son, you and I who have come to Christ are his sons and daughters. I, I think that is just wonderful to, to hear him speak to people this way. So verse 23, they go on to Jairus's house. And when they get there, there's a great commotion of wailers, actually paid mourners. George told me of the story that they were at a funeral once. And this guy came in and started to wail and cry. And they all wondered who he was. And they asked each other, do you know who this guy is? And then finally, they went to the young attendant of the funeral home and said, we don't know who this man is. And the guy knew. He went in and talked to the man and spoke to him and asked him who he was there for. And when he told him, he said, well, you're in the wrong room. And so he turned off the tears and went to the other room. And so much the same thing has happened here. Jesus arrives at Jairus's house, instructs the mourners to leave. He's not going to put on a big show. He asks for privacy, saying she's not dead. And suddenly they stop the one emotion and start to laugh. He goes inside, and I like this because you see, when he got rid of these mourners, he wanted to do this quietly. It wasn't a big show with him. But I also thought too, this little girl had actually been dead, unconscious, not just in a coma, but dead. We don't know how she was feeling when she was gonna come to. And so he was very sensitive to that little girl. He goes in and he takes her by the hand and he says, Talitha Kumai. And she got up. And I just thought about that when I looked at the, the etymological relation of this word. Isn't that a big word? <laughs> what does it mean and where its verb forms are? Well, it can also mean lamb. So in other words, get up, little lamb. It's time to get up. Very gently, very quietly. I don't know about you, but all our children are so different. You have kids that nothing fizzes them. They're as hard as nails. <laughs> and you have other children who are so sensitive that if there's noise or if there's a crowd, they don't do it well. They don't handle it well. And so I imagine when he went into that little girl, he wanted to just gently awaken her so that she wouldn't be terrified. 
Here's this strange person leaning over her, and she's awakened. Talitha Kumai. I just thought, you know, he's the good shepherd. In Isaiah, we read, he'll tend his flock like a shepherd, and he'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Those things in scripture just, just move my heart because, you know, we have children, don't we? Mine are raised, but those years of raising them, my heart would go out sometimes with worry and concern, and you know, the Lord looked after them. And I just want to say, you young ones now, you're, you're just starting with these little ones. Jesus loves those children. He loves you. So if you're faithful in prayer, and if you're bringing them before him, and if you're showing them in your house how you love the Lord Jesus, he'll honor that. I know he will. So he tends his flock like a shepherd. My little lamb, whether he said little one, I don't know. But he said it's time to get up, time to awaken. And you know, isn't that what he did to us? When he brought us to himself, it's time to wake up, time to see your sin for what it is and who I am, and what I can do for you in terms of forgiveness. And so we see by these last two miracles the worth that Jesus places on females. We have just had the International Day of Women. And with Jesus, every day is a day for women, for he shows by these two people, one little girl on the verge of womanhood and an older woman, and Jesus gives them dignity and restores them. And so the next little portion we're, we're going to read is verse 37, or 27, sorry, to 34. 27 to 34. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demons had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Sorry, I'm just reading see where I am. Yep, that's it. I'll stop here. Two blind men cry out, and they address Jesus as the son of David. This title is Messianic. Matthew used it in chapter 1 and 1. And it will appear eight more times often in relation to the healing power of Jesus. The Lord had promised to David a son of his would reign over a kingdom that would last forever. The prophets saw the coming son of David as one much greater than his father, one who would overthrow every hostile enemy, heal every disease, and conquer death itself. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 35 when he said, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Interesting. Isn't that the perfect description of what we're just looking at? Well, the blind acclaimed him as the son of David, yet those who had plain vision would not acknowledge him. And what did they accuse him of? 
casting out demons by the prince of demons. There's another portion of scripture where Jesus deals with this, and when he's accused of having a demon, someone replies, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Indeed, does a demon want the best for anybody? But you see, these Pharisees were in opposition to Jesus, and he knew it. In fact, Luke records that Jesus foretold this when he said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And these accusations by the Pharisees are part of it, and it's just starting. Well, let's read 35 to the end. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Two blind men cry out, and they address Jesus as the Son of God. And then he's accused of having demons and that he's doing it by demons. Well, he went throughout the cities. He kept on through cities and villages. And as we looked over these past ten miracles, we see that some of them came about as they asked Jesus for healing. Other miracles happened when people didn't ask, and some miracles happened when they couldn't ask. Sometimes it was their great faith Jesus commended. Other times there was little or no faith. Sometimes Jesus heals when there is great faith. We know he commended that. Other times there is no faith, which shows, of us, which shows us that he's going to heal whom he will heal. So to say to somebody, if you had more faith, that person would be healed, is saying that we control the outcome. But Jesus heals whom he will. Sometimes he healed them and their lives were changed. Other times they disobeyed. But no one was beneath his consideration. And the main thing we need to see is that he has ultimate authority to forgive our sins, to change our hearts. We see the compassion as he saw the crowds, and he, he describes them in this way. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, who was he referring to? The Pharisees, the scribes. The religious leaders were to have been truthful guides, but they were false leaders. And Jesus looks upon the people as helpless, without shepherds who would teach and protect them. In fact, he would say woe to them seven times in chapter 23. But again, I don't want to get to steal that person's thunder. Just to say this, God has already judged the leaders in Ezekiel 34. I have it here somewhere. Let me just read it. Ezekiel 34. I'll just read a little bit of it. I won't go too long. He really dresses them down. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have sought, not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they're scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, he just goes on and says, I will require my sheep at your hand. And then he talks about rescuing the sheep. 
I will rescue my sheep. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. Then all of a sudden, after, you know, quoting this and, and, and telling them this, we see here that God, or Jesus, speaks a word about praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Send out laborers. Let me just read it again. Just this past part here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what we just read that in, in Ezekiel. Then he says to his disciple, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Interesting that as you see Ezekiel say, I will go and find my sheep. I'll gather them. That's exactly what he's going to do. Who does the calling? He says to his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Who does the calling? Who does the sending? The Lord. These scribes and Pharisees should have seen the truth that was playing out before them. But their old wineskins couldn't take this glorious new wine that Jesus had for them. The new covenant would need laborers that would preach the gospel. And Jeremiah 3.15, it says, I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Shepherds who have the heart of their master. So Jesus is telling them here to pray for those laborers. And the chapter next week we'll see these disciples are the answer to their own prayer. But it's not just the disciples, is it? It's you and I, because we can labor for the Lord in so many ways in his kingdom. Things that you may not even think are impacting somebody else are, because if the Lord is using it, he'll use us. So it's been really good looking at these miracles to see what a shepherd we have. But he loves us, he loves us and he cares for us deeply. And so for any of us who are having doubts about the things in our life that are happening, we need to just really turn to him in a deeper way. Look at these miracles and see what he did. He has the authority over disease, over sin, and, and he asks us to pray. He tells, that's the last thing he says in that chapter. Pray for the Lord to send laborers. And he says the same thing to you and I. In any issues that we have, pray and seek him. So let's close now. Next week, Eva is going to take us through the answer to this prayer. And we'll be studying that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we've looked at so many miracles today. So much to take in. But the one thing is, Lord, that you are such a, a good God. A, passion, a compassionate God. And you loved us so much that you sent that son, the son of your bosom, the one that you loved. You gave him to us. He said, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So truly, we were without excuse. We know that you're a forgiving, merciful God. We thank you so much for those who are listening today and those who are here. We look at our lives and we see how gracious you are to us. We see that at that time where we came to that point where we saw our need of you, you lifted the veil from our eyes. And it was as though you said, get up, wake up. 
Thank you, Lord. And we pray in the days ahead that all those who come under the sound of these podcasts and those who come into Maple Ave will hear the gospel, will turn to you, will be raised into new life. We just ask this in your name. Amen.